0: Welcome to The Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I'm Andrew Rennie. On this evening's The Space Show, SpaceX's Starship, the world's largest rocket, is still on the ground. and We have details. The European Space Agency's Jupiter mission is on its way. The curious case of phosphine on Venus. The Mars helicopter makes its 50th flight while the Perseverance rover climbs up out of Jezero Crater. It's not quite out of the crater yet, but it's on the way up. And in New Zealand, preparations to launch four environmental satellites. And get your diary handy. We have details of how you can see tomorrow's partial eclipse of the sun. So please get your diary handy. First up, we have Space Show News. And in the news, an attempt by SpaceX to launch its Starship rocket was called off on Monday evening, just minutes before the expected liftoff from Boca Chica, both stages of the world's largest launch vehicle had been loaded with propellant when a frozen valve caused mission controllers to postpone the launch attempt by at least 48 hours. And it turns out it's spent longer than that. The Starship is a two-stage vehicle standing 120 metres tall and having a diameter of 9 metres. It has a dry mass of 300 tonnes, rising to 5,000 tonnes when loaded with liquid methane fuel and liquid oxygen oxidizer. The first stage has 33 of the SpaceX-designed Raptor engines, providing 75 mega-newtons of thrust. The plan for this first Starship flight is for the first stage engines to burn for three minutes. The first stage will then separate, flip over and thrust back towards Texas before making a hard splashdown in the Gulf of Mexico. Propelled by six Raptor engines, the ship's Second Stage would use the 14.7 meganewton thrust for six minutes to propel itself across the Gulf of Mexico, south of Cuba, across the Atlantic Ocean, Africa, the Indian Ocean, Southeast Asia and the Western Pacific Ocean. After reaching an apogee of 235 kilometers, Starship would re enter the atmosphere, protected by its heat shield, which is made of thousands of tiles. A hard, destructive ocean impact is planned to occur several hundred kilometers north of the Hawaiian island of Oahu. The launch site is called Starbase and is about three kilometres from where the United States-Mexico border on the Rio Grande meets the ocean. Now, another launch attempt is planned for tomorrow evening, Melbourne time, a little before 11.30. So, just half an hour before midnight, we would hope to see that lift off. Meanwhile... After a one-day delay because of bad weather in Kourou, Ariane Spass was able to launch the European Space Agency's Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer on Friday. Here's how the commentary went.
1: Welcome to Europe Spaceport here in French Guiana and to your front row seat for the launch of the Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer on an Ariane 5 rocket.
0: Our rocket is here, on the launch pad, with the Jew spacecraft on top, ready to begin its journey. I'm Raphael Chevrier.
1: And I'm Lisa Peterson and welcome to flight VA-260 on the first leg of JUICE's journey into space. Following yesterday's postponement due to bad weather, Ariane 5 is now ready for launch here at Europe's spaceport in French Guiana with her single passenger, the Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer, JUICE safe and sound under the fairing. Liftoff is scheduled in just under half an hour. I'm right here in the aptly named Jupiter Mission Control Room. This is the nerve center of today's mission, and with me right here for an update, we have Stefan Israel, CEO of Arian Space. Welcome, Stefan. Good morning, please. Thank you very much. So we're back here together. Uh, so can you first of all maybe tell me? 24 hour delay, uh, what, what was the, the reason for this delay yesterday?
2: So very simple, the launcher was ready, juice was ready, the launch was ready but the weather was not with us. You know we have to monitor two risks, uh, high altitude winds and it was okay but risk of lightning yesterday was a real risk with the cloud uh, to, to monitor and so we have made the decision not to lift off yesterday. But of
1: course as we always say Better be safe than sorry. Juice can absolutely afford to wait another day under the fairing. Not a problem. Yes,
2: for sure, because you know that once we will have done our job after 27 minutes and once we will have orbited uh, juice on an escape orbit, then it will be the start of an eight-year journey. So one day is nothing as compared to what we have ahead of us. We will monitor the weather now in the final minutes. The teams have worked
0: all night. And so
2: at 9.14 we will lift up.
0: And then half an hour after that introduction, the final countdown and the lift off.
1: Attention for the decompte final discount. 10, 9, 8,
2: 7, 6, 5, 4, 3,
3: 2, 1. Allume à
2: Julia, allume à jeu et décollage.
4: La propulsion est nominale.
0: Within seconds of the liftoff, the Ariane 5 had disappeared from sight on the ground, uh, above cloud, and continued on into orbit, heading eastward. And then we heard that one of the key items of the launch was would the spacecraft separate from the rocket Separation and this has been confirmed that the spacecraft is safely separated on its targeted orbit and you can see on the images the relief from the team.
1: this is years and years of work on the part of these
0: teams. Decades of work for some teams. Yes. And uh, that separation achieved, that was Ariane Sparsa's job done, pretty much, except to uh, uh, de-orbit the uh, upper stage. And then the attention transferred to... Darmstadt in Germany, where the control centre was, and there they were on tender hooks because they had to unfill these giant solar panels. They had to be so big because Jupiter is a long way from the Sun, and the amount of solar energy you can get from the Sun at Jupiter is quite small. So would the panels unfurl? Bruno, (laughs) how how is it going in there?
5: It's going very well. Um, The mood has changed from one of a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of happiness, to one of full concentration. The automatic sequence that the spacecraft executes to unfold the solar panels, to produce power, to orient itself, has completed successfully. We reached the end of it. And now we are actually in a position to command the spacecraft. So the engineers here are just took control. They are going through hundreds and hundreds of parameters to make sure everything is uh, as expected. The spacecraft is looking in top shape. What a, what a fantastic machine it is, uh, developed by, by our partners at Airbus. What a fantastic work they've done. Uh, normally, when you put a satellite out in space and it suddenly faces this harsh environment of space, a lot of things need to be fine-tuned, a lot of parameters go out of limits, the temperatures are not what we expect. But on this spacecraft, actually, we only saw two small parameters that, uh, that were slightly cool, but um, that causes no worries at all. So the spacecraft is behaving beautifully. People are concentrated, people are going through the procedures and starting the final work. So now it's full concentration and uh, you can tell that uh, everything is silent now. Uh, people are just focusing on what they need to achieve now. For me, uh, it's time to go and get some rest. I need to go, come back on shift at midnight to do the completion of the configuration of the satellite for the cruise phase uh, for the, and the end of commissioning just before that. So, uh, it's goodbye from my side, uh, it has been a pleasure.
6: The giant planet Jupiter is a place of intrigue and mystery. A special environment within our own solar system. When Galileo first raised his telescope to the planet, he discovered four moons, Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. Early space probes raised more questions than answers about this fascinating gas giant planet and its intriguing moons. Now, those answers are within our grasp. In April, ESA will launch the Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer, JUICE. JUICE is equipped with the most powerful science payload ever sent to the outer solar system. 10 instruments will conduct the most comprehensive remote sensing, geophysical, and in situ measurements ever performed at Jupiter. To bring JUICE to life, ESA has led a consortium of more than 2,000 people in 23 countries, working in 18 institutions and 83 companies. NASA, the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency and the Israel Space Agency have all supplied hardware. The journey begins in April 2023, when JUICE will launch on an Ariane 5 from Europe's spaceport in Karoo, French Guiana. For eight years, JUICE will cruise through space before beginning a complex series of maneuvers in the Jupiter system. During this time, JUICE will face many dangers. Radiation near Jupiter can fry the spacecraft's electronic brain. The planet's gravitational pull is so large, it could threaten derailment. Nevertheless, ESA's expert spacecraft operators will guide JUICE through 35 flybys of Europa, Ganymede and Callisto before orbiting Ganymede. But the dangers will be worth it for the science that JUICE will uncover. Europa and Ganymede are thought to contain subsurface oceans that could hold more water than Earth's oceans. JUICE will explore these moons to study whether life could arise in different environments across the cosmos. JUICE will also study Jupiter's complex weather, chemistry and climate in detail. It will turn Jupiter into a standard reference for us to compare against other gas giant planets throughout the cosmos. This grand odyssey of exploration begins in April 2023.
0: In 2021, we reported that claims had been made for the discovery of significant amounts of phosphine in the atmosphere of Venus. If true, this indicated that life may exist perhaps in the cool upper reaches of the torrid atmosphere of this cloud-enshrouded planet. Now, doubt has been cast on that finding.
2: In an article titled, If there is phosphine on Venus, there isn't much, science writer Morgan Rainberg wrote in the journal Geophysical Research Letters a summary of a paper published in that journal. New observations of the Venusian atmosphere collected from the SOFIA Airborne Observatory showed no sign of the potential biosignature gas, casting additional doubt on a previous report of its detection. In the absence of direct observations of extraterrestrial life, scientists often focus on searching for biosignatures, chemical byproducts of life, that can be detected with remote sensing. Although Mars has received the most attention in this regard, other solar system worlds with atmospheres also have been investigated. In 2021, planetary astronomers reported a detection of phosphine gas in the atmosphere of Venus using ground-based radio observations. The concentration of the gas was initially reported to be 20 parts per billion but was later revised to 7 or fewer parts per billion on the basis of improved calibration and analysis of the data. On Earth, phosphine can be associated with biological processes, and researchers are studying whether the gas may be used as a sign of life on other planets. The purported phosphine detection has been met with skepticism because of difficulties with the data calibration and analysis of the ground-based observational data. Follow-up attempts to detect phosphine in Venus's atmosphere using other ground and space-based telescopes also have produced no definitive detection. The new measurements by Cordoner al. contribute another set of measurements from a unique observational platform, the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy, known by its acronym, SOFIA. The SOFIA aircraft flies at a height of 13 km, which is above the majority of Earth's atmosphere, greatly reducing contamination of the phosphine signal from terrestrial sources. The researchers used SOFIA's German receiver for astronomy at terahertz frequencies instrument, which has very high spectral resolution, to collect far-infrared spectroscopic data from 75 to 110 km above Venus's surface, which is very close to the altitude range measured by the earlier study. Data collected by GREAT during three observing flights revealed no clear evidence of phosphine, the researchers report. If any phosphine is present in Venus's atmosphere, and assuming the abundance is constant in time, the new observations indicate an upper limit on its concentration of 0.8 part per billion. This level is the most stringent upper limit presented to date for the entire Earth-facing hemisphere of Venus. Many intricacies of Venus's dense atmosphere remain puzzling for planetary scientists. The next big breakthrough may arrive when NASA's da Vinci probe plunges to the planet's surface, which is scheduled to occur in the early 2030s. Da Vinci is an acronym for Deep Atmosphere Venus Investigation of Noble Gases, Chemistry and Imaging.
0: In the early 1990s, a spacecraft called Magellan was sent to orbit the cloud-shrouded planet Venus. It had a cloud-penetrating radar to map the surface. In February, a paper was published in the scientific journal Nature Geoscience that reinterpreted this 30-year-old data to make an astonishing discovery.
7: This report from NASA. Earth and Venus are rocky planets of about the same size and rock chemistry, so they should be losing their internal heat to space at about the same rate. How Earth loses its heat is well known but Venus's heat flow mechanism has been a mystery. A study that uses three-decade-old data from NASA's Magellan mission has taken a new look at how Venus cools and found that thin regions of the planet's uppermost layer may provide an answer. Our planet has a hot core that heats the surrounding mantle, which carries that heat up to Earth's rigid outer rocky layer, or lithosphere. The heat is then lost to space, cooling the uppermost region of the mantle. This mantle convection drives tectonic processes on the surface, keeping a patchwork of mobile plates in motion. Venus doesn't have tectonic plates, so how the planet loses its heat and what processes shape its surface have been long-running questions in planetary science. The study looks at the mystery using observations the Magellan spacecraft made in the early 1990s of quasi-circular geological features on Venus called coronae. Making new measurements of Coronae visible in the Magellan images, the researchers concluded that coronae tend to be located where the planet's lithosphere is at its thinnest and most active. Suzanne Smirker is senior research scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Southern California. She led the study published in Nature Geoscience. She said, For so long we've
8: been locked into this idea that Venus's lithosphere is stagnant and thick, but our view is now evolving. Just as a thin bedsheet releases more body heat than a thick comforter, a thin lithosphere allows more heat to escape from the planet's interior via buoyant plumes of molten rock rising to the outer layer. Typically, where there's enhanced heat flow, there's increased volcanic activity below the surface. So coronae likely reveal locations where active geology is shaping Venus's surface today.
7: The researchers focused on 65 previously unstudied coronae that are up to a few hundred kilometers across. To calculate the thickness of the lithosphere surrounding them, they measured the depth of the trenches and ridges around each corona. What they found is that ridges are spaced more closely together in areas where the lithosphere is more flexible, or elastic. By applying a computer model of how an elastic lithosphere bends, they determined that, on average the lithosphere around each corona is about 11 kilometers thick. This is much thinner than previous studies suggest. These regions have an estimated heat flow that is greater than Earth's average, suggesting that coronae are geologically active. Smirker added,
8: While Venus doesn't have Earth-style tectonics, these regions of thin lithosphere appear to be allowing significant amounts of heat to escape, similar to areas where new tectonic plates form on Earth's seafloor.
0: You're listening to 88.3 Southern FM, the sounds of the Bayside. And this is The Space Show. Diary time coming up. You're listening to The Space Show, which is presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. We hold free... F-R-E-E, no charge, uh, public meetings uh, once a month. And the next meeting is this coming Monday between 7 and 9.30 p.m. We meet at the Golden Gate Hotel, which is at 238 Clarendon Street. That's on the northwest corner of Clarendon Street and Coventry Street. And uh, we'll be upstairs in the Coventry room. Uh, now the meeting is free, but you can purchase meals and drinks. And we have talks and discussion on current spaceflight activities. And, uh, if you want to join us, uh, from six o'clock till seven o'clock, uh, time between those times, uh, for a meal downstairs, you're welcome. Except like it's, uh, the, the, the Prices there are quite reasonable. So the meeting upstairs is free from 7 o'clock. And um, there's going to be a planetary uh, science report and there's going to be Australian Space News report. And also, if the flying <laughs> flying water tank gets flying, that's the uh, SpaceX uh, big rocket, uh, there will be a report on that as well. So please come along this Monday between 7 and
7: p.m. NASA's Ingenuity Mars helicopter has completed its 50th flight on Mars. The first aircraft on another world reached the half-century mark on April 13, traveling over 322 meters in 145.7 seconds. The helicopter also achieved a new altitude record of 18 meters before alighting near the 800-meter-wide Bealva Crater. With flight 50 in the mission logbook the helicopter team plans to perform another repositioning flight before exploring the Fall River Pass region of Jezero Crater. Lori Glaze, the director of the Planetary Science Division at NASA headquarters in Washington, proclaimed, just as the Wright brothers continued their experiments well after that momentous day at Kitty Hawk in 1903, the Ingenuity team continues to pursue and learn from the flight operations of the first aircraft on another world. The history-making rotorcraft has recently been negotiating some of the most hazardous terrain it has encountered on the Red Planet. Ingenuity landed on the Red Planet in February of 2021 attached to the belly of the Mars Perseverance rover. It will soon mark the two-year anniversary of its first flight, which took place on 2021, April 19. Designed as a technology demonstration that would fly no more than five times, the helicopter was intended to prove powered, controlled flight on another planet was possible. But Ingenuity exceeded expectations and transitioned into being an operations demonstration. Every time Ingenuity goes airborne, it covers new ground and offers a perspective no previous planetary mission could achieve. Imagery from the helicopter has not only demonstrated how aircraft could serve as forward scouts for future planetary expeditions, but it has even come in handy for the perseverance team by testing the helicopter's limits engineers are gathering flight data that can be used by engineers working on designs for possible future mars helicopters that includes the people designing the mars sample return campaign's proposed sample recovery helicopters since leaving the relatively flat confines of jezero crater's floor on january the 19 ingenuity has flown 11 times into riskier terrain setting new speed and altitude records of 23 kilometers per hour and 18 meters along the way. Although the deep chill of winter and regional dust events, which can block the sun's rays from reaching the helicopter's solar panel have abated, ingenuity continues to brown out at night. As a result, the helicopter base station on the Perseverance rover needs to search for the rotorcraft signal each morning at the time ingenuity is predicted to wake up and when the helicopter does fly, it now must navigate rugged and relatively uncharted terrain, landing in spots that can be surrounded by hazards. Josh Anderson is Ingenuity Operations Lead at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Southern California. He notes that the helicopter is now in riskier terrain than when on the floor of Jezero Crater. He says, we are not in Martian Kansas anymore. We're flying over the dried-up remnants of an ancient river that is filled with sand dunes, boulders, and rocks, and surrounded by hills that could have us for lunch. And while we recently upgraded the navigation software onboard to help determine safe airfields, every flight is still a white-knuckler. This year Ingenuity has become a frequent flyer, beyond facing more challenging terrain. Ingenuity will also fly at a greater frequency in the coming days because the helicopter needs to remain within electronic earshot of the rover. With its auto-nav capability, Perseverance can travel hundreds of meters each day. Anderson noted: Ingenuity relies on Perseverance to act as a communications relay between it and mission controllers here at JPL. If the rover gets too far ahead or disappears behind a hill, we could lose communications. The rover team has a job to do and a schedule to keep. So its imperative ingenuity keeps up and is in the lead whenever possible. Perseverance recently completed exploring Fole Drygarn, a scientific target that may contain hydrated silica, which is of strong astrobiological interest. It is currently headed to Mount Julian, which will provide a panoramic view into nearby Bailva Crater. The Ingenuity team at JPL have been keen to point out their feats of Ingenuity, pun intended. Built with many off-the-shelf components, such as smartphone processors and cameras, Ingenuity is now 23 Earth months and 45 flights beyond its expected lifetime. The rotorcraft has flown for over 89 minutes and more than 11.6 kilometers. Teddy Zanettos is Ingenuity team lead at JPL. He says, When we first flew, we thought we would be incredibly lucky to eke out five flights. We have exceeded our expected cumulative flight time since our technology demonstration wrapped by 1,250% and expected distance flown by 2,214%. Surpassing expectations like this comes at a cost, however, with some helicopter components showing signs of wear and the terrain becoming more challenging. The Ingenuity team recognizes that every great mission must eventually come to an end. Zanetto's adds, we have come so far, and we want to go farther. But we have known since the very beginning our time at Mars was limited, and every operational day is a blessing. Whether Ingenuity's mission ends tomorrow, next week, or months from now is something no one can predict at present. What I can predict is that when it does, we'll have one heck of a party. The Perseverance rover and
0: Ingenuity were launched from the United States in 2020. Kenneth Farley works at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory as project scientist for the Perseverance Mars 2020 rover. He recently gave this outline of plans for the future investigations of the rover.
3: So as Minnie said, I'm project scientist for the Perseverance mission. And before I tell you what is ahead of us for perseverance that is going to feed into MSR, I want to let everybody know, if you don't already know this, um, the samples that we've collected so far that have been put down in this first cache have been very carefully documented in the series of documents we call the initial reports. So my goal here um, is just to tell you a little bit about what Perseverance is going to be doing going forward. We are no longer double sampling. We are done with that phase. We are not preparing to uh, deploy another cache. We're just single sampling, and we have 23 tubes on board. So I want to tell you what we're going to be doing uh, between now and uh, when we make the rendezvous with the uh, MSR missions. So this mission has turned out to go through a series of what we call campaigns. First campaign was on the crater floor where we found igneous rocks. Second campaign was on the Delta front, um, where we essentially got a cross section of the sedimentary rocks deposited in the lake and in the river system that filled the lake. And now we've driven up on top of the fan uh, where we are seeing what we believe to be fluvial deposits, river deposits. What we call the upper fan campaign uh, is expected to last until the middle of October or so, depending on what exactly we find. And the goal here is to uh, explore, characterize, interpret, and sample rocks deposited on the top of this feature, what I think to be mostly fluvial. And we expect to collect during this campaign more sandstones. We collected sandstones low down in the section. These will be sandstones from higher up in the section and may represent different provenance, different grain size. Um, Conglomerates, each and every grain in a sandstone or a conglomerate represents a rock that has been brought from somewhere else. That's very exciting. And we are also looking for uh, hydrated silica. There's reason to believe that there is a hydrated silica uh, deposit based on orbital data from CRISM, which would be very interesting from a biosignature preservation point of view. Also looking for sedimentary rocks with clay-sized grains. These are important for uh, uh, organic organic concentration and preservation. And we may also find either hydrothermal or diagenetic features of um, both uh, general scientific interest, but also from an astrobiological point of view. And one of the things that I think will be really interesting is we are gonna start seeing what I call here exotic boulders. These are boulders brought from up in the headwaters. These are not little tiny things, these are big boulders. And so potentially every one of those is a piece of Mars that we may or may not see in our future. So we'll spend some time looking at those and we may choose to sample them if they look especially interesting. So that's the upper fan campaign. After that, we move into the region uh, called the crater margin, looks different. This is a carbonate and olivine rich area and it may be a deposit produced uh, in the lake. The carbonate may actually be lacustrine. That would be a wonderful discovery, but this is the area that we will explore next, probably through about spring of next year And we will likely collect olivine and carbonate, which may be sedimentary. It may also be igneous. It may be similar to the crater floor rocks. And we will reach the inner uh, rim of Jezero crater and start looking for rocks that have been uh, brought up by the Jezero impact itself. And they may also, in association with that impact, be hydrothermally altered. So we're acquiring uh, yet a different set of, of samples once we get up there. And then finally, uh in the out years the plan is that we will move out of jezero crater uh move up the crater rim onto the uh planum area the highlands surrounding the crater where we will discover uh, completely different geology where we find different geology than exists in the crater the pre-impact crust there may be hydrothermal systems associated with uh, the jezero impact up there There is likely to be mega breccia, large blocks of deep crustal rock brought up by either Jezero or even more interestingly from Isidus, the giant impact basin, uh, not too far off from Jezero Crater. Uh, Phyllosilicates, olivine and olivine carbonate. So again, a big diversity of samples uh, to be acquired through something like 2030 for for when the rendezvous happens. Um, In that time, we will also survey validate uh, the landing site for MSR. Deliver the baseline cash to the sample retrieval lander. So that is the plan forward.
8: 88.3 Southern FM. In
0: Europe, an independent advisory group has reported to the European Space Agency, calling for the agency to significantly increase its autonomy in human and robotic space exploration. The group says that countries and regions that will not secure their independent access to space and its autonomous use will become strategically dependent and economically deprived of a major part of this value chain. Here's something of what was said there.
4: Space, and especially space exploration, is very much more than an inspirational dream to go beyond the limits, which is already very much important still today, but it's a political responsibility to make it perceived as something to relate to. For the main implication it has, space and security and stability and peace, and I think this is a topic that especially now is quite crucial, space and environment and space and science, just to mention a few of them. So the question uh, you put on the table to all of us, uh, what about Europe? Should uh, Europe uh, uh, be ambitious and affirm its leadership and being on the driving seat in this ecosystem or to be an observer, a junior partner, as we actually now uh, to the US and other emerging uh, power countries like China, of course, India and others. Well, in this report, you will find the answer, <laughs> which is quite clear. Uh, I think first that space must be considered as a global commons, decisive for stability. And in this context, uh, Europe, not starting from scratch, because you already have in place uh, many important uh, programs that you all know, great missions, but now it's really time to step up uh, and jump to another level. otherwise. What is at stake? It's about European autonomy. And this is the main key objectives that we are highlighting in the report. It should be achieved through bold political will and investment. And it's about modernizing, for instance, Ariane and Vega. It's about preparing, why not, a new autonomous human space exploration program. So having the ambition to be One of the key players. Second point is about the international stability, of course. It's important that Europe as an autonomous and strong key player, it can play a role to make the governance of the system as it should be oriented to peace.
0: Earlier this year, a vicious tropical cyclone hit the east coast of New Zealand's uh, North Island, causing enormous damage. Fortunately, the rocket launch pads owned by Rocket Lab survived without significant damage. Most appropriate, then, that Rocket Lab is set to launch a constellation of cyclone and hurricane monitoring satellites from the Mahir Peninsula. This is the company announcement.
7: Rocket Lab is a company based in Long Beach, California on april 10 it announced it will launch nasa's tropics constellation across two dedicated electron missions lifting off from launch complex one in new zealand next month tropics is an acronym for time resolved observations of precipitation structure and storm intensity with a constellation of small sats the tropics constellation will monitor the formation and evolution of tropical cyclones including hurricanes and will provide rapidly updating observations of storm intensity. This data will help scientists better understand the processes that affect these high-impact storms, ultimately leading to improved modeling and prediction. The two missions are expected to launch within approximately two weeks of each other in May. The first launch, named Rocket Like a Hurricane, is expected to launch as soon as May the first and the second mission, named Coming to a Storm Near You is expected to follow around May the 16th. The constellation consists of four CubeSats that require launch to a specific orbit at an altitude of 550 km and inclination of about 30 degrees. All four satellites need to be deployed into their operational orbit within a 60-day period, making Electron the ideal launch vehicle as it enables dedicated launch to unique orbits on highly responsive timelines. The two missions were initially scheduled to lift off from Launch Complex 2 at the Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport within NASA's Wallops Flight Facility in Virginia but will now take place at Launch Complex 1 in New Zealand to support a May launch window that will see the satellites reach orbit in time for the North American 2023 hurricane season. Rocket Lab founder and CEO, Peter Beck, said, the need for improved climate and weather data from space is acute and growing. Hurricanes and tropical storms have a devastating effect on lives and livelihoods, so we're immensely proud to be entrusted by NASA to launch the tropics missions which will enable scientists and researchers to accurately predict storm strength and give people time to evacuate and make plans. With the 2023 hurricane season fast approaching, time is of the essence for these missions. Because we operate three launch pads across two countries, we can constantly assess the launch manifest and adapt launch schedules and locations based on customer and mission requirements. Will McCarty is program scientist for the Tropics mission. He said, the ability to advance our understanding of tropical cyclones from space has been limited by the ability to take frequent measurements, particularly from microwave instruments that see into the storms. Historically, Satellites have been too large and expensive to provide observations at a time frequency that is consistent with the timescales at which tropical cyclones can evolve. The CubeSat era has allowed for smaller, less expensive satellites. With modern small satellite design, we designed a constellation that optimizes the scientific utility of the mission in a way that we can launch in a cost-effective manner. These factors enable tropics to provide a new understanding of tropical cyclones by decreasing the time by which a given storm is revisited by the satellites. And we look forward to
0: that launch coming up in a few days' time. Now, we're going to look at another instrument uh, that was launched on April the 17th attached to a communication satellite, Intelsat 40 e And uh, this is called TEMPO. So let's take a listen to our story about TEMPO.
8: A new satellite air quality instrument called the tropospheric emissions, monitoring of pollution, other size known as TEMPO was launched last week into geostationary orbit. This high vantage point allows for the satellite to constantly monitor the same area, A crucial distinction from the Polar Orbiting Satellite Instruments Ozone Monitoring Instrument and TROPOMI that generally provide only one midday measurement at a location per day. With its sensors permanently fixed on North America, TEMPO will provide hourly measurements of pollutants such as nitrogen dioxide ozone and formaldehyde during the daytime. TEMPO is the first of its kind for North America, with its measurement domain spanning from most of Mexico to southern Canada. The spatial resolution of the measurements is expected to be slightly better than a previous instrument called TROPOMI, yielding unprecedented diurnal information on air quality. TROPOMI is the tropospheric monitoring instrument. A similar instrument, the Geostationary Environment Monitoring Spectrometer was launched in February of 2020, and is currently in orbit above the Korean Peninsula. Sentinel-4, scheduled for launch in the 2024 timeframe, is to be stationed above Europe and will complete a virtual constellation of three geostationary air quality sensors focused on heavily populated continents, mostly in the Northern Hemisphere. Tempo will produce an order of magnitude more data than previous missions to monitor oil and gas emissions and air quality over the Gulf of Mexico. A primary goal of Phase Two will be to provide information on how satellite nitrogen dioxide products over the Gulf of Mexico vary temporally and regionally, and how such variability is related to oil and gas production. Tempo data will be invaluable for comparisons with the United States Bureau of Ocean Energy Management Emissions Inventory. Given a history of well-characterized satellite nitrogen dioxide data, one approach for initial analysis has been decided on using data from the ozone monitoring instrument on the aura satellite the tropospheric monitoring instrument and eventually tempo nasa and the bureau of ocean energy management will explore methods to detect any appreciable nitrogen dioxide signals or changing nitrogen dioxide concentrations near the gulf of mexico's oil and natural gas platforms because nitrogen dioxide amounts over the water are much lower than over land Finding a signal or relationships among satellite nitrogen dioxide and Bureau of Ocean Energy Management's emissions inventory will require long averaging periods. The hourly data from TEMPO should provide the best opportunity to quantify the emissions from oil and natural gas platforms over the Gulf of Mexico, which will aid the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management in validating their future inventories. And uh, that.
0: Instrument will be checked out over the next uh, few months and to provide that very valued data. This has been the space show. I'm Andrew Rennie, and hopefully we'll be back next Wednesday at seven o'clock.